0: Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. When I concluded the last podcast, I said I would use the next one to talk about ADF helicopters. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, if you're not interested in helicopters, some other things have come up that are slightly more urgent to do with politics and AUKUS and, yes, once again, submarines. Now, since there's a slight delay of two or three days between recording podcasts and them going online, I wasn't aware that the Senate was going to order an inquiry into the government's use of VIP flights. Obviously, I'm very glad that's happened because the previous coalition government and this one claimed that details of VIP flights had to be kept secret so that bad people uh, could not calculate patterns of life activities of government ministers. Frankly, the only patterns that were being protected by this new regulation were how often politicians use VIP aircraft for personal reasons or marginal reasons, or dubious reasons, going to their homes, going to sporting fixtures, going to play rounds of golf. If anyone really was looking for patterns of life, that's freely available from the websites and general social media of all of the ministers themselves. There's absolutely no good reason for stopping the information being provided retrospectively of who has been using VIP aircraft for what purpose. I also note that the Senate uh, has announced that there's going to be an inquiry why Qatar Airlines have been blocked from adding additional flights to and from Australia. You might recall this was, I mean, it's not connected with defence, but it's connected with one of my main complaints, namely this culture of secrecy, which I believe, believe actually damages all governments. It's just that they don't realise it until it's too late. The natural political imperative in this country is for ministers to cover stuff up. We have quite an immature political culture. You can see that if ever you're unlucky enough to be in Question Time live, what you see on television because of the careful placement of cameras and microphones reveals a fair bit of screaming and shouting, but I can promise you nothing like that prepares you for the full reality of what it's like being there in the chamber with both sides, coalition and Labour, just constantly screaming and heckling. Not only is this completely immature, it's also counterproductive because ministers become concerned at a personal level, doesn't matter about, you know, policy or the good of nation, the nation or whatever, they don't like being shouted at. Then when government ministers who have been subjected to this sort of continuous non-stop abuse for three years, when they're voted out and when they go into opposition, they see question time as the opportunity to do exactly the same thing. Now, I don't know what's going to sort out that level of immaturity, It would probably require an almost unique coincidence of the prime minister of the day and the leader of the opposition, both being mature, thoughtful people and coming to an agreement to just lower the tone and try and get back to some reasonable level of constructive debate and analysis about political issues. Now, that's just a bit of a digression to to give people some who are outside the Canberra bubble, because I'm going to talk from inside the Canberra bubble in a moment some context as to why this, well, part of the reason, it's not the only reason, but it's, in my opinion, it's an important part of the the reason why this culture of secrecy exists. We'll turn now to AUKUS. I've said over and over again uh, that I and other journalists and and analysts find out far more about what's happening with AUKUS from uh, US sources I mean, you know, official on the record statements to Congress, that sort of thing, than we do in this country. The government hopefully will realize that they're being damaged by this because even though voters might not explicitly be concerned about the detail of AUKUS, sooner or later they pick up the feeling, the vibe, if you like, that something is being hidden. And I have a theory which I think I can justify a lot that goes along the lines of all of the people in favor of acquiring nuclear-powered submarines aren't really interested in the finer detail. What they're interested in is the big picture aspiration to to just go ahead and do it. Now, I have the feeling that as more people get into the detail of AUKUS, the more of a negative it's going to be for the government. I know that that's a very big call because at the moment opinion polls are showing that support for AUKUS, even though it's been declining, at the moment there still seem to be more people in favour than against. But that's because so far matters like why are we getting second-hand class submarines, which I keep on going on about, that they've not been fully explored, nor about the costs of decommissioning them. Another snippet from the Canberra bubble, highly relevant to AUKUS, is that the prime ministership of Anthony Albanese might not last too much longer. I realise that's going to come as a big shock to many. It's very Canberra, and it relates to several factors, but mainly the possibility that the no case against the voice to parliament will get up on October the 14th. If that happens, and I have to say the opinion polls are at the moment not looking good for the yes case, there will straight away be a hunt to figure out what went wrong, and the Prime Minister is going to be squarely in the firing line. Now, whether he deserves that or not, that's another case, and that's not really part of it. But already the opposition can sniff blood there are some opposition strategists around who are already predicting that the prime minister will not survive a no vote, that his credibility will be fundamentally destroyed because he's invested so much in the Yes campaign, the entire strategy, in fact, the basic concept that it will be difficult for him to survive. Now, that's just a theory, but prime ministerships are sometimes defined by single events. Kevin Rudd was was on the skids after his reaction to the failure of the 2009 climate change talks in Copenhagen. Tony Abbott, likewise, self-destructed after trying to award a by uh, to Prince Philip. And likewise, it's possible, and at the moment, I'm not saying it's likely, but it's possible that... Uh, Prime Minister Albanese's uh, time in office will also be defined by the referendum on the voice to parliament. The implications for AUKUS are, of course, profound, because if the prime minister goes, the deputy prime minister in the form of Richard Miles will almost certainly go as well. And in this country, they have been the two biggest backers of AUKUS. Let's uh, also turn to what's been happening in the United States. And just today, US date would be September the 7th, Bob Mendez, the chair of the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee, told a hearing hearing in Washington that Congress's implementation of the AUKUS deal, or the legislation to allow allow it to go ahead, had not gone as smoothly as some of us would have hoped. The legislation is still stuck in. In the Senate. And I really urge people to read it. It's a publicly available document. I'm obviously not going to go through it all now. But even if the legislation is passed, and one assumes that at some point it will, there are parts of it that I find deeply troubling. And I'll just read a section. The certification described in this subsection, blah, 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 Secretary of the Navy, the Secretary expects to provide sufficient investment. In the United States, submarine industrial base to result in the construction and procurement of no fewer than three Virginia-class submarines per year by blah, blah, blah. This is a section saying that the transfer or the sale of Virginia-class submarines to Australia will not be considered until the industrial base is producing three Virginia-class per year so that the united states can meet its own requirements first. now that's not going to happen by 2030. i mean people have been talking about two virginia class submarines per year which would already be a substantial increase on in what it is at the moment, somewhere about 1.5. but three virginia class that's you know that's really a big stretch. and the the legislation again seems to confirm my worst fears that if we are to receive Virginia-class submarines, it's not going to be in the early 2030s. The other thing to observe uh, about not only the legislation, but some of the supporting evidence being provided to the the Senate, it's all about the one-way transfer of technology. It's all about expanding the US industrial base. It's all about, well, I should say, a sort of vague idea of combining the industrial basis of Australia, the UK, and the US. But this doesn't seem to be done in the sense of reciprocity. All of the phraseology is about the further expansion of the US companies into Australia, and I'm assuming in the UK. And again, I'll just quote from a piece of evidence given to the Senate. This is from an assistant secretary, She said, we are also working with our Australian and British counterparts to ensure equal opportunity and access for American firms and workers within AUKUS efforts in alignment with our respective domestic regulations and international trade obligations. Again, this isn't reciprocity. Now, people might say, well, there are other pieces of legislation that are relevant and this one document doesn't define the entire relationship. To which I say, sure, fine, Uh, tell me what they are, give me some references that can actually show that Australian companies will have equal opportunities to expand in the US, as the US believes their companies will be expanding in Australia. Now, also the Sunday before last, there was a 60 Minutes program about Virginia-class submarines and AUKUS. And frankly, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I thought it might have been just pure uh, US propaganda, uh, but no, in fact, it, um, uh, it at least raised a few questions about the cost of the program and uh, whether we actually need them, but it left a number of, of other things um, untouched. And it didn't delve into those difficult issues of why it's second-hand submarines or their disposal. And again, on the second-hand submarines, I really think this is crazy. Why would we want to get something halfway through its life? It's more difficult and more expensive to maintain. There are issues of obsolescence. And at the moment, the US industry base is struggling with new build and maintenance and and separately maintenance Of their Virginia class submarines. The only argument that I've heard in favor of taking second hand submarines is that because they're part of the way through their life, then we don't need them to last as long because the Orca submarines in the 2040s will be coming online. I mean, it's all so tenuous and it's assumption built on assumption. I can't understand why people are putting so much faith and trust in this. Now, another part of the equation, which should have been blindingly obvious to everyone, but I was reminded when I was speaking with uh, Malcolm Turnbull about this a couple of days ago, he pointed out that because Australia will be receiving from the US inventory submarines that only carry conventional weapons, whereas US ones carry nuclear weapons, the US will be depriving itself of nuclear weapons firing platforms. And why would they want to do that? It, again, just further strengthens the case for what I believe will emerge at the end of the day, just either a practical or practical obstacles to the transfer of submarines to the United States or people in the US will just change their minds and say, no, we need these for our needs first and too bad, So sorry, but circumstances have changed and so how's the plan? The other part of 60 Minutes was uh, Defence Minister Richard Miles again spoke of the growing size of the Chinese Navy, surface ship numbers and submarines. Well, yes, absolutely, but please do something about it. And there are several solutions available that we've discussed on this podcast before. Morph production of Arafura OPVs to the C90 Corvettes, missile-armed Corvettes, very capable, and also fast-track the ANZAC frigate replacement program by an Australian-built Miko A200 or, or, or something like that. Press the accelerator pedal, but of course, there's just the the usual bureaucratic delay to anything, and the budget shortfall. or oh, sorry, b- budget problems that we've spoken of previously, and I won't go through all of that again. 60 Minutes also repeated the lie that nuclear-powered submarines are undetectable. This has been said over and over. It's become an established myth. No, they are not. They don't have to surface as often. They still need to stick up their masts every now and then. But they make noise. They emit heat, and they leave awake. And that, and the, the noise and the heat happens, especially when they are travelling fast. Just to give you very quickly another perspective for conventional submarines, in 2005, a Swedish Gotland submarine, quite a small one, went to the United States to participate in exercises and repeatedly sank the aircraft carrier, the USS Ronald Reagan. Uh, it, it remained undetectable. It was able to avoid all US countermeasures, including surface ships and other submarines. I'll quote from an article from a 2021 piece in a magazine called Naval Post, written by an analyst by the name of Ray McConnolly. Air-independent propulsion technology is revolutionising the accessibility of extended diving and silent running submarine capabilities that were previously only available to much more complex, expensive, more significant and louder nuclear submarines. There are now numerous AIP concepts in general, with fuel cell-based systems being a popular choice recently. A diesel sub will be most effective when ambushing a hostile fleet whose position has already been queued by friendly intelligence assets. The slow sustained underwater speed of AIP-powered diesel submarines, on the other hand, makes them less than ideal for stalking prey across vast swathes of water. Diesel submarines operating relatively close to friendly bases and defending littoral waters are unaffected by these constraints. However, while diesel submarines are significant for close range operations, the US Navy rarely uses them. Thus, diesel submarines that benefit from AIP will be a lethal and cost effective means of defending littoral waters. Looking specifically at Australia, I think there are almost no problems faced by conventional submarines that could not be fixed by air-independent propulsion plus a northern supply refueling depot. In fact, doesn't need to be a secret, I submitted a proposal to the Defence Strategic Review nominating Christmas Island as a possible resupply base, but people much more authoritative than me uh, have suggested calling for such a facility to be developed at Exmouth, or, which by the way was used very effectively by US and Dutch submarines during World War II, or Broom or Darwin. All of these things would extend the on-time patrolling endurance of a conventional submarine by between three and 12 days. The other thing that I don't think has really registered yet with the Australian voter is the enormous cost, this $368 billion over 30 years. Now, we've had estimates that the Brisbane, Newcastle, Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne very fast train would cost about $120 billion to build. Um, and it were also used more than... 20,000 well-paid union jobs, and it would deliver very large economic benefits to the entire country. So I think if the voters of Australia were asked, what would they prefer? Eight nuclear powered submarines with work in Australia to start in the late 2030s. That's work in Australia. That will only happen with the AUKUS submarine, not with the second hand Virginia class submarines. Would they prefer that? Or the high-speed rail network plus 12 conventional air-independent submarines with a start date almost immediately and serious work underway by about 2025. And finally, but fundamentally, this again reminds me of what appears to be a lack of analysis about how Australia benefits from extended patrols in the South China Sea. With conventional submarines, plus ground-based missiles, plus aircraft, plus more small agile surface ships, no enemy could come within 4,000 kilometres of the Australian coast, which is way beyond the range of aircraft carrier attacks. Anyway, that's it for today. I've run out of time. What I was speaking earlier about the prime ministership and it possibly coming to an end, that's just one scenario. I'm not putting a probability on it. I'm simply saying that it's something that is being actively discussed in Canberra. The government has put itself in a pretty weak position in a number of ways, and I think that we're in for an exciting few months. Anyway, we'll be discussing this and other things, probably helicopters, in the next podcast. Thank you for listening. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.